1: I've got some great guests lined up for you today. We're going to talk population in China. The restaurant industry is on the menu. Then a look at farmland investments. Looking forward to a really great show today. Live from a Lorna Dune Thursday via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning we begin with a conversation with Farm Journal Word Ninja, Chris Bennett. Then it's Hudson Riley from the National Restaurant Association and later Paul Pittman of Farmland Partners. And right after the news, Greg Henderson from Drovers. I'm filling in for Chip today. It's me, handsome newsman Davis Michelson. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning. Lots to get to. Nice wide variety of topics here. And I just got to say, I don't know if you noticed or not. Sometimes when I'm listening to some of my favorite radio programs... I can tell when uh, they've got a cold. And I'm, and no, don't, no. Oh, here, here. don't cry for me. I, I'm not even experiencing moderate discomfort, mild discomfort at at worst. But I'm a little, little nasally. Can you tell? I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I stick out like a sore thumb. Don't cry for him, folks, but please hand him your tissue. Oh, that'd be fine. I could use those. Absolutely. Big Apple Joe. I appreciate that. Uh, because I'm too proud to ask for it myself. That's the thing. I'm that kind of guy. Anyway, I'm really glad that you've tuned in today. I hope, uh, hope you can get past my nasally voice because we have some fantastic and important conversations to get to this morning. Uh, Chris Bennett, it's been a while since we talked to Chris. Um, now Chip was a little critical and I, and I sort of agree with Chip. Uh, about the title of a recent article on agweb.com from Chris Bennett, but the guts of the article, uh, solid, solid stuff. Chris is going to walk us through some demographic shifts in the population in China. We're going to talk about um, the, the potential ramifications of that for the ag sector, for just demand for food. Uh, and for imports into china in general how soon we might see some impacts i don't know what some of this might be a, a wee bit speculative but uh Chris is has has really got a great handle on this and so i'm anxious to talk to him and you know who knows he he he's like well and if you, if you want to talk about other stuff i got these other things too which are just wild um hopefully there's time we'll see then uh hudson riley from the national restaurant association we're post-pandemic now and I, I don't know what sort of what sort of mark that might have left on the restaurant industry. And so we'll get a check in from him. And then Paul Pittman, Farmland Partners. These are those non-farmer investors that we talk about. I want to sort of dig in with them, see what their deal is and uh, and what we might learn from them on the farmland market. And then, of course, Greg Henderson, you um, We'll come up right after the news here, where the leadership of the Senate Ag Committee Wednesday announced a set of Farm Bill hearings. Senators Debbie Stabenow and John Boozman will hold the first hearing on February 1, focusing on trade and horticulture titles of the Farm Bill. In a joint statement, the two said, quote, we are both looking forward to a collaborative process, working with all senators to deliver a strong Farm Bill. The Federal Reserve's main measure of the nation's money stock, known as the M2 Money Supply, declined for a fifth straight month in December, dropping a record $147.4 billion. From a year earlier, the volume of cash, coins, checking and savings deposits, other small-time deposits, and cash parked in money market funds fell by nearly $300 billion. It's the first ever annual decline. Public health advocacy groups filed a lawsuit against the Food and Drug Administration this week. The groups say the lawsuit challenges the refusal to phase out unnecessary uses of antibiotics in animal agriculture. The lawsuit claims that the misuse of these medicines has contributed to the rise and spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Here, this is interesting. Well, we've got some stuff on China Population with Chris Bennett, but here, I didn't even know this, Uh, in China... The temperature has become unusually frigid. Mohe City, the northernmost city in China, reached lows for three straight days, get this, below minus 50 degrees Celsius. After paying for costly zero COVID measures, local governments in China have few resources to buy expensive natural gas. This, according to the New York Times, it's chilly in China and, and across that whole part of the world, apparently. Uh, yikes, 50 degrees Celsius below. I don't even know what that is in Fahrenheit. Sounds awful. Well, lawmakers are renewing efforts to intensify oversight of foreign purchases of U.S. farmland. Aimed at concerns over recent acquisitions by Chinese buyers, bipartisan legislation would put the agricultural sector in the domain of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. That federal panel reviews investments for national security interests. Of note, China owned slightly less than 1% of foreign-held U.S. ag land at the end of 2021. Uh, It's Canadian investors, largest share at 31%. And beef producers could enjoy better market conditions and perhaps a better bottom line in 2023. Dr. Phil Bass from the University of Idaho says in his assessment, the relationship between producers and packers has improved. However, he cautions tensions between the two sides will remain, but he says those are needed.
2: That, that helps to maintain the fairness in the market. Um, I think bringing these new packers online, these this new hook space online, is going to help alleviate the concerns of the producers. But I'm telling you that, that the tables are going to be flipped here pretty darn soon, and the producers are going to be in the catbird seat. Because if you have calves, those calves are going to be worth a lot more than they used to be.
1: And with that let's uh let's bring in Greg Henderson from Drovers. Greg an interesting note there on the uh the conditions for uh for the the calf market but I want to talk about feedlot conditions cuz it sounds like it's a mess out there.
0: Yeah, uh you know, Davis, we've been talking about this change in leverage uh, from the packing sector to the feedlot sector, and some of that has happened uh, late December, early January. But now this uh, these winter storms that we've seen have created some muddy conditions in Kansas, uh, Nebraska, and Colorado. For instance, Davis, uh, last week in Nebraska, normal marketing of fed cattle was slowed by that uh, storm. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday of last week, the number of cattle marketed out in Nebraska was eight to 10% lower. And that's due to those muddy, sloppy conditions. Mm. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this winter is it, we really haven't had a winter like this for maybe two or three years in, in many areas. We're seeing this daily freeze thaw cycle, uh, it, which makes it even worse for those pin conditions. Uh, and, and it, you know, the stress is added to the cowboys as well as the cattle, you know, they they're working long hours trying to keep those waters open and so forth, but Davis winter time is when we see demand slow. So mm. this has really played into and, and kind of taken some of this leverage away from the cattle feeders and put it back into the Packers who have not been as aggressive lately. Uh, we're, we're going to see reduced supplies. These storms have reduced the weights quite a bit uh maybe as much as 17 pounds through January so that's gonna uh, again provide more leverage to the cattle feeder moving forward as we get into you know late winter early spring we could see prices uh rocket higher quite a bit if everything falls into place
1: I like the sound of that Greg Henderson from Drovers thanks for your perspective this morning buddy have a good day thank you that was greg henderson uh we've got chris bennett coming up next we're going to talk china at well we'll start there and then who knows where the conversation might go davis michelson your pal here behind the big green leafy microphone Agritalk.
3: to produce higher yields and greater value at harvest timing is everything
1: AgriTalk is brought to you by Golden Harvest. The foundations of a successful season begin with Golden Harvest Game Changing Corn. Find your hybrid at GameChangingCorn.com. Welcome back to AgriTalk. Everybody, your pal, Davis Michelson here in for Chip. He's traveling home from Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. Fresh off the Top Producer Summit down there. We're going to get a full update from him when he returns in the morning we'll have our standard free for all. Everything will be back to normal tomorrow. It's gonna to be great. But uh right now I have the privilege of once again speaking to our friend Chris Bennett, Farm Journal Word Ninja. What's shaking, buddy?
5: Hey Davis, how are you doing, brother? Glad to be on here with you, man. Privileged.
1: Outstanding. Glad to have you. Uh what's what's the weather like where you're at? How you how you how you living?
5: Oh man, rocking and rolling. It's a little bit warm, you know. I, I reckon there's going to be some major weed problems come this spring, but you never know, man. It may finally get cold this year. Just it just ain't happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, bro, uh, I I brought you on to to talk about your article about the uh, demographics in China, and just to lay a little bit of um, a little bit of groundwork here, and then I'm going to turn you loose. Uh, China surba- surpassed the one billion population mark in 1981 um and at that point they're thinking oh my gosh we're going to be overpopulated we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot here so the chinese communist party the ccp i'm just going to read from your article here went ultra draconian reacting to surging population numbers by mandating a nationwide one child policy chris that include forced abortions sterilizations fines prevented at least according to your research here 400 million births but maybe it looks like they've overcorrected
5: it's a historical stunner no one knows exactly where this demographic train is going but it doesn't look like it's going to end well for anyone and that includes all of the countries that sell products to china so right now china's got you know 1.4 billion something like that it's being surpassed as we speak by china any i mean excuse me by india any day the reports will come out and tell you that india now has the most uh, populous nation in the world Uh, so china can't recover from its one-child policy that was implemented in the 1970s they've tried to pull out of the rut and because of you know massive amounts of censorship and government control their precise population numbers as we go into the future are going to hit a wall. As I said earlier, that's never happened before in history and how that washes onto uh, US exports, no one knows for sure. And at the same time in some separate sidecars, you've got an an aging nation in China. I'm gonna say roughly by 2030, they'll have more people over 60 than we have in the United States. So you'll have 360 million Chinese that are over 60. That changes by itself, Davis, that changes the diet of an entire nation and what they want to import. But if what a lot of demographers see indeed happens, and by 2050 or by uh, 2100, you get a Chinese population that's halved or worse, uh, you're talking about seismic, repercussions to the US export market. And hey, things always change, but it's different when you're talking about a nation like no other. We've never been, never been at this historical stage uh in in recorded history.
1: Now (laughs) we we in the in the media, I'm using air quotes for that term, um have sort of learned that maybe you can't always trust China's numbers um the the worst outlook uh, according to the UN uh their population figures i believe have China's uh population declining by over 60% to 494 million feels like uh if i'm reading your report right between the lines it almost feels like you might take the under on that
5: <laughs> that's that's a good way to put it
1: uh, you know you
5: can't they, they tried to pull out of that one child policy and uh, I can't remember 2012, 2016, it boosted it up that you're allowed to have two children Then they boosted it up to you're allowed to have three children, but they couldn't get society to pull out because of that one child policy. They have a massive distortion between marriage age bachelors and, and, and marriage age females. I think there's more like maybe 30 million more females in that age bracket. Most of them don't want to uh, have children period or get married. So I don't know what their birth rate is right this second. I'm going to say 1.1, 1.3. And, and and that mirrors a lot of Western Europe and Japan and so on. You come to a stage, I think I put in an article, where you start realizing you, you need to produce more coffins than cradles. You need to produce more depends than baby diapers. And when you get there, uh, if, if, like many people think, demography is destiny, then there is something seismic that's that's going to going to happen. You got you got to pay the piper.
1: Well, and it sounds like not only have they shifted the demography, um, just with the physical number of humans uh, being being produced, um, they've also perhaps inadvertently shifted the culture away from a culture of parenthood, a culture that aspires to have children, to raise a family. It, it almost seems like there are segments of the Chinese population who have moved on from the, uh, from the aspiration of starting a family.
5: That's, that's exactly right. It seems to be the way that prosperity is tied to nations that modernize. Uh, that, that's, that's a, it's, it's a terrible thing for the future, but it is happening. We see it happening across the entire planet. Except, the, except in Africa, of course, where the population mm. appears to be skyrocketing. Yeah. We're going to end up uh, with Nigeria moving from roughly, I think it's about 200 million to 400, 500, 600 million very soon. And the question then for uh, nations that export agriculture products is, okay, we see booming population coming to Africa while all these other nations shrink. But you can't just say, hey, we'll turn our boats around and send them to Africa. Because with the with the chaos of sub-Saharan Africa, which is where all these countries are, you get you ask you also have to ask a simple question: Is can they pay for the ag goods once they get there? Uh, hey, these are all questions to be determined. But my lord, they they certainly need to uh, be examined and and chewed on.
1: You spoke with uh, Todd Thurman, international swine management consultant and owner of SwineTux Consulting Services. He takes a pretty dim view on the future of exports to China.
5: He does, Davis. He's a super sharp fella, and uh, he's no Cassandra, though. He 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 knows his stuff. Between the lines, he thinks that uh, there's a you know tremendous amount of space between the ask and the bid. He thinks China's population is really going to take a massive dip, and he is urging the u.s export community industry to really wake up and, and take a long look at what might be coming
1: so i think maybe and uh, ag is u.s ag is doing a pretty good job an excellent job of reaching out trying to find new sources of demand india could be a bright spot for us uh in the future and, and other places and you talked about africa of course establishing those relationships and kind of getting that up and, and rolling is definitely going to take some time. What kind of time frame are we talking here before we may see a notable uh, decrease in demand from China? Any idea?
5: Ooh, I, I would leave that to scientists and demographers, but I'll say that, that if China's population, if they indeed have 360 million people over the age of 60 by 2030, Just look at the dietary change there. I've heard Todd say it. Uh, Look look at the amount of dairy that a group of 60-plus-year-olds would consume as opposed to a group of 10-year-olds and below. Uh, You've heard Peter Zehan say China's population might be halved by 2050. Others say 2,100. Hey, I, I don't know, but again, whether the train is moving fast or slow, it's happening, and as Todd Thurman said, these numbers, at least to some degree, are already baked in the pie. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, um, 2100 would give us a little bit more time to to reach out and find some new sources of export demand. And, of course, we've got domestic demand here. We're, we're hoping we'll kind of come to the forefront for uh, American ag. This is an excellent story, Chris. I'm so glad that you have brought this out Something that definitely needs to be discussed. You've got some more stories coming up. We don't have time to get into them, but I'm just going to tease them a little bit. Uh, A set of stolen deer antlers that went missing for 14 years is on your docket. And another one, a farmer who woke up naked at night in the snow had to fight to survive after a PTO accident. Bro, a a PTO accident and naked in the snow. None of that sounds good.
5: No, sir. No, sir, sure. I mean, <laughs> you already know, everybody listening already know, it means his clothes were ripped off. Yeah. And I, I'll just add the caveat, Davis, that he had a boot on. He had a oh, boot he did have a boot. Head, okay. But uh, otherwise, there was nothing on him, not a shred.
1: Chris Bennett, uh, check out his work at AgWeb. It's always, always a worthwhile expenditure of your time to read what Chris Bennett writes. Chris, have a great day, pal. Thanks for your time.
5: Hey, thanks, brother. Take care, Davis.
1: Right on. We'll be right back with more AgriTalk.
3: with the experts from ProFarmer.
1: And joining us now, ProFarmer editor, Brian Grady. Brian, some strength in the soybean complex, um, actually really across the board in the uh, the grains and the beans.
6: Yeah, you betcha, Davis. Uh, really, it is broad-based uh, buying this morning across the the grain and soy markets. Uh, corn futures, uh, wheat futures, and in, in the entire soy complex are all trading solidly to the upside. So, you know, uh, crude oil market's helping out. Uh, we had really good weekly export sales numbers uh, across the board there. And, uh, you know, they were either at or above expectations. And, and uh, so that's all given us some support along with, uh, you know, we still got concerns in Argentina. I, I know they've received some recent rains and those types of things, but uh, basically all of those rains did was stop the bleeding for now. And, and uh, the underlying uh, factor is that uh, drought still covers uh, much of their uh, production
1: area. Well, and the the strength extends. We rarely talk about the softs, but cotton, sugar, coffee, all higher. Energy's higher as well. With the uh, bright spot of natural gas under some pressure. Now, speaking of under pressure, uh, we're looking at cattle. Uh, the cattle complex under some pressure.
6: Yeah, probably not a surprise in feeders, uh, given the the strength in the corn market this morning. So uh, feeders are are pacing us in in the livestock markets, uh, trading moderately lower in in most of those contracts. Live cattle futures, they're lower as well. Um, Yesterday's cold storage report, the the beef stocks data uh, was on the disappointing side. And and so that's lending a little bit of pressure as we wait on cash cattle trade to develop for the week. And then the hog market, uh, the the pork data in the cold storage report was slightly negative as well. And... and, uh, uh, you know, still waiting on the cash market to, to post the seasonal low. The cash index is up a little bit today, though.
1: That's Brian Grady, Pro Farmer Editor on Markets Now. <laughs> Opinions expressed on Agritalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. In the morning, you're coffee'd up and you're thinking In the afternoon, you've calmed down, but you're still thinking. We're here all day. Agritalk. And I will be here all day. Chip's traveling today. Your pal, Davis Michelson, at the helm of Agritalk. So glad that you have joined us. Just had a great conversation with Chris Bennett. You can check out his stuff at agweb.com dot com let me scroll up just a little bit um the, da, 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 there the title of the article we were talking about future shock u.s ag sleeping on china's historic population crash uh that's at agweb.com from mr chris bennett uh let's uh let's talk restaurants now i've got hudson really senior vp of research from the national restaurant association hudson thanks for joining us on AgriTalk this morning sir
2: Oh, well, thanks. We appreciate the opportunity to talk with you.
1: Absolutely. Um, now, throughout the, the pandemic, the lockdowns, the whole nutty thing that was the last few years, we were keeping an eye on restaurants, on um, then the reopening and how that might impact the restaurant industry. Can you zoom us out now and kind of give us a look? Post-pandemic, a lot of things changed Uh, In response to the pandemic, uh, what is the general condition of restaurants now?
2: Well, 2022 was the most uh, normal year, if I can use that term, uh, since pre-pandemic. In other words, 2019. But the restaurant industry is settling into, in essence, a new normal. And restaurant sales in 2022 uh, were okay. Okay. But fundamentally, the industry is operationally and structurally somewhat different than it was pre-pandemic. So, for example, if, if you take a oh, usual restaurant operator in, in the United States, uh, the pandemic fundamentally altered how those consumers use restaurants. And as you recall, with all of those on-site closings, the consumer shifted their restaurant patronage to what the industry calls the off-premises market. So for example, that would be takeout, delivery, drive-through, and curbside. And during the depths of the pandemic, uh, almost 90% of all restaurant traffic was off-premises. That has edged back to around 78%, but it has fundamentally changed how operators view that off-premises market and as a result of that shift, there's been a lot more technology that's been integrated into restaurant operations now. So, as, as a restaurant customer, whether you're on site or, or you're using carry-out delivery, uh, there's a lot more technology in that operation. Some you see, and some you don't
7: see.
1: And if they're they're investing in new technologies in in response to changing consumer habits, it sounds like. Uh, these changes might be here to stay.
2: Absolutely. When we survey restaurant operators and and we ask them about their technology investments, they have definitely stepped it up. Uh, Part of it is in what you see as a consumer. For example, in quick service restaurants, you'll notice more menu video boards, kiosks. In table service restaurants, you'll notice more tablets and and, uh, reservation systems. But a lot of that investment is in what we call the back of the house, in other words, what the consumer doesn't see in terms of administration, inventory, management. And also, most importantly, through that smartphone now. And if there's one thing that the pandemic did for the typical American restaurant customer, it was to make them much more familiar and knowledgeable about how to use technology uh, in their restaurant experience. And As you can expect, it dramatically varies by age group. In other words, the younger age cohorts, the Gen Zers, the Millennials are much more likely to expect to use technology in their restaurant experience than, say, uh, the baby boomers and the Gen Xers. So it's rapidly evolving. It will continue to evolve. But the one thing that's clear is that Americans love to use restaurants, even during the pandemic. Obviously, that was the worst period for The industry in its recent history uh but looking towards this year overall industry sales will continue to advance Uh, the economic environment certainly does remain uncertain and also an important thing to note is the wide wide geographic variations which occur in restaurant sales and in an area that has population growth that has employment growth that stimulates income growth And the one economic indicator that correlates best with growth in the restaurant industry is income growth. And so, when you look at a map of the United States, as you know, all communities are not created equal. So, the strongest restaurant sales growth occurs in those areas uh, with population, employment, and income growth.
1: How much of that has to do with? um, I, I I come from a small town. You really couldn't get delivery there um how much does the availability of delivery figure into that
2: uh in the the off-premises market delivery is actually the fastest growing component of that market Mm. however in terms of traffic it's still then less than one out of ten uh traffic occasions for the industry uh, as you would expect, drive-through has been the real beneficiary. in other words, yeah. there are more operators that are focusing around developing drive-through concepts now uh, but from, from the American consumer perspective they have deemed restaurants to be much more essential in their daily lifestyle huh. uh, than than say 10 20 years ago. So they That's actually good. work to protect their, their restaurant usage.
1: Well, you got to eat. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and
2: at home or away from home.
1: Right. Right. Well, so with the popularity of uh, food away from the from the restaurant, the drive through, the pickup, and such, has that changed uh, how restaurants build their menus in anticipation of hey, this isn't going to be eaten here; it doesn't come straight off the griddle and go out to the plate. This is going to have you know this. is They're going to eat it in the car. They're going to drive 15 minutes and get home and put it on the table. Has that changed how menus are constructed?
2: Exactly. There there are two important drivers of restaurant sales. The first is convenience, and the second is socialization. Hmm. And uh, if you look at convenience, for example, the greater usage of drive throughs carry-outs, what we call the portability factor becomes much more important. In, in other words, handheld foods. Uh, conversely, if you're thinking about a socialization experience, in other words, going on site and uh, celebrating a birthday anniversary, something like that, your expectations and in, in what you order uh, is entirely different. So uh, whether it's a social uh, event or whether it's a convenience event dramatically influences uh, those menu choices. But uh, one thing the uh, pandemic did do is it it really streamlined restaurant menus across America. Mm -hmm. Part of that had to do with the supply chain challenges, but equally uh, important was uh, what we call the digitization of restaurant menus. Mm -hmm. In other words, the ability now to rapidly scan menus on smartphones uh, through desktops. And so that has because a lot of the ordering now is digital pre pandemic. Just one out of every 20 restaurant orders was digital, uh, during the heights of the pandemic that, uh, ratcheted up to one out of five, Wow. it's edged out uh, down a a little, but that's, that's, uh, through that digitization in and of itself, it has realigned restaurant menus and how they're presented.
1: Well, and. That realignment, that re-socialization or perhaps desocialization of the restaurant experience has me thinking about the waitstaff. Um, I, I appreciate the waitstaff. I, I tend to give a good tip, you know, whenever I can. It, do you have a sense of how that's impacting the, the waitstaff workforce? Has, has their, their tip income suffered?
2: Well, when you survey restaurant operators as the association does uh, every week, their top challenge is labor related. In other words, recruitment. Mm -hmm. And part of that challenge uh, has to do with how the American workforce has changed during that pandemic period. And as a result of that, as I mentioned earlier, there's a greater reliance on technology. But the technology in and of itself, even though it is a productivity and efficiency enhancer, it doesn't necessitate and replace uh, actual live staff on-site, uh, whether you're ordering on or, or off-premises. Right. So the industry still is down 450,000 jobs
3: wow.
2: uh, compared to where it was pre-pandemic and Of all the industries in America, the restaurant industry was the one that was most substantially impacted in terms of sales and employment declines. And so certain segments have rebounded, and and other segments such as table service uh, are still below where they were pre-pandemic.
1: Are those positions lost, or are they just unstaffed looking for workers?
2: Uh, In table service, many of them are unstaffed. Because, uh, as, as you're well aware, probably even in your community, there are certain operators that have limited hours of operation, that have uh, changed days of operation, and so um, the industry overall is extremely innovative and flexible. Sure. But but the fact remains that the the labor uh, supply situation, due to the changing demographics and the Mm-hmm. labor force participation patterns is, is remains a challenge to the industry that's in front and center
1: Hudson really senior vp of research national restaurant association a fascinating conversation i appreciate you brother have a great day
2: thank you davis anytime
1: hey everybody don't forget to tip your wait staff seriously um we're going to come right back after these words with paul Pittman from farmland partners Agritalk.
0: Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com.
1: Welcome back to AgriTalk, everybody. Davis Michelson here. Uh, Chip is traveling. He's headed home from Nashville, Tennessee. It sounds like they had a great time down there at the Top Producer Summit. Uh, They do it every year, of course, uh, as you probably know. Um, And I'm anxious to hear what he about the conversations that he had, because the beauty of these uh, these little summits, these get togethers is that you he has the chance to talk to farmers face to face, find out what's actually on their mind, what's important to them. And uh, so uh, it should be interesting to hear what he came up with. Um, right now, I've got Paul Pittman, chairman and CEO of Farmland Partners. Mr. Pittman, thank you for joining us on AgriTalk. Good morning, sir.
7: Uh, thank you for having me.
1: Um, I'm new to Farmland Partners. Can you tell us what Farmland Partners is and uh, and what you got going over there?
7: Sure. Farmland Partners uh, is a New York Stock Exchange listed company. We're a REIT and we own farmland all across the United States, which we rent to farmers. Uh, the company was uh, went public on the stock exchange in 2014. Uh, today, we have, um, you know, about uh, 1.4 billion dollars of farmland around the United States. Uh, the largest holdings are in the state of Illinois, and the second largest holdings are in California.
1: We've heard a lot in the, uh, in the run-up in farmland values uh, about those non-farmer investors and the support that they've added to the market. Um, I, I think that's, that's you guys, right?
7: Well, yes and no. I mean, institutions like us mm-hmm. uh, tend to own, we own, you know, us, other large institutions that own farmland, we own at most 2 or 3% of farmland in the United States. Okay. You know, most of the investors are individuals who don't happen to farm but have rural roots, either still live in smaller towns in America or possibly grew up in the countryside and, you know, moved to Chicago or Indianapolis and, Mm -hmm. you know, still invest in farmland in their hometown. You know, that's really the investor driver, not so much, you know, the Mm -hmm. big guys like Bill Gates or corporations like us
1: right right um, well that's I'm, I'm very interested by this because um, when you when your firm makes a purchase you won't you own the dirt um, how, how do you manage um, keeping that soil in production you must have some sort of local liaisons or, or how does that work help me get my head around it
7: yeah, so so our company is, I think, a little bit unique. Uh, you know, I was a farmer. Um, I also had a career on Wall Street, which is how I put these two things together. Uh, but, you know, I'm a University of Illinois agriculture major. I was a farmer. We're very focused on, you know, having high quality tenants on our farms who will, you know, we don't tell them how to farm by any means. But we do want them to farm, you know, using sort of best practices as, as sort of defined by the major research-oriented uh, universities and the, you know, and the major leaders in the industry. So, so we're, you know, we're pretty, you know, we do have local representatives. You know, I have five or six uh, folks that live in uh, the region they manage. Um, but it's a pretty efficient model because we uh, cash rent virtually all of our farms. Um, And so, you know, it's a once every three year or so negotiation to release the farm. And then, of course, we go out and, and, you know, take a look around uh, at least several times a year uh, at a property we own. Um, And then, you know, we're available uh, to talk with a tenant if they need help or they need a repair. You know, they call us on a Sunday morning because a, a well went down, we'd, <laughs> sure. we'd get right on it. Yet that day, you know, you know yeah. it's, it's 24-7, 365 to service our tenants when they have a problem. But by and large, you know, uh, these tenants are very sophisticated and very capable of, of taking care of our land well, and that's what we want them to do.
1: Well, yes. And um, when, when you're talking about the sorts of dollars that your firm has rolled up in a piece of property and in in your portfolio, that maintenance, that uh, taking good care of that investment that you've made, has got to be key for you. Oh, a-
7: absolutely. We we you know we expect them to maintain uh, soil fertility. We expect them to you know do appropriate tillage practices for the type of land that they're farming. Um, you know, we we ask them to keep records on fertilizer and chemical application. So, of course, we can go back and look if we need to. And it's, um, you know, we're, we're pretty like I said, that we're pretty happy. We believe that the overwhelming majority of farmers are very good stewards of the land. And, uh, you know, those are the tenants we have.
1: Indeed, indeed. Um, clearly, from the nature of your your business I think I could probably call you a long term farmland values bull. Um, in the short term, what's the market look like? We've been elevated for a while. Are we are we due for a setback? What do you reckon? Um,
7: well I think we are I think we are due for a pause. I wouldn't really call okay. it a setback. Okay. It's, yep. it's really an important feature of understanding this market. You know, farmland market is what I call a upward surge and then a plateau, an upward surge and a plateau. And so many people in the industry want to talk about it in terms of up and down. But what they're doing is they're kind of comparing apples and oranges. Mm. So right now we are in a very broad, high volume surge era. And we may be going into the plateau, by the way, but certainly the last year and a half, lots of farm sales, total acres sold, total dollars exchanging hands, higher than normal, upward pressure on prices. When you go into the plateau period, you see the volume of transactions shrink. Mm, And that's what I, and, and then you compare this occasional distress sale this really right. broad active market so it's kind of like not a fair comparison sure and so what what i believe will happen is we're going to see prices kind of stabilize and a lot less farms will trade hands you yep. know you know nobody wants to be the you know the buyer nobody wants right. to be a seller in that plateau period
1: paul pitman chairman ceo of farmland partners thanks for your time we got to hop farmlandpartners.com if you're interested for more uh hudson really restaurant.com chris bennett agweb.com this afternoon we'll talk with jim emter from van on and company tomorrow morning the friday free for all for big apple joe and myself davis michelson thanks for stopping by